You're listening to the PK Experience Podcast, where I tap into the minds of today's impact players. Impact players are people that are making a difference. They are making the world a better place, and it's my intention to inspire them to keep going, to get louder, to give them a bigger platform, to share their message, and also to inspire the other impact players who might be listening to this call, develop their own gift more and amplify that to make the world a better place. My name is Peter King. I'm the host of the show. I've got a very special guest, a very special impact player today. Her name is Belle Robertson. Belle is a sober coach. A sober coach is somebody that helps people stop drinking. Belle was somebody who drank too much and uh, ultimately was able to quit, and she's been sober now for many, many years. She shared her journey online and attracted tens of thousands of visitors, much more than she even initially thought was even out there, Um, and she's now helped over 3,000 individuals on a one-on-one basis stop drinking. Um, What she found out, and she, you know, we kind of get into this into the call, but If you look at the spectrum of drinking, you have on one end, of course, abstinence, people who don't drink at all. On the other end, you have full-fledged alcoholics, and there's programs out there for that. People, Most people are aware of like AA and uh, some other similar programs. Um, uh, And then a lot of people, of course, are social drinkers. They'll have a drink here and there. But there's likely millions and millions of people who are a little bit deeper in and have a drink on a nearly daily basis, if not a little bit more. They drink a little bit when they wake up. They might drink if they're a little bit stressed out. They might drink you know, at the end of the day to kind of wind down. And they know that they're in a little too deep because they're thinking about stopping drinking. And that's really where uh, Belle has made her mark because that is the name of her business, tiredofthinkingaboutdrinking.com. Um, like I said, she went through that process herself. She realized, I'm just done thinking about this. I'm done trying to stop. Um, and you know, these are people that are fully functioning. You know, they may even have great life. Their life isn't falling apart. Uh, but where's the support for that? That you know, that's really where she's found her niche. Is that there's just not a lot of people that are supporting um, those people that are in that space. So. Uh, I'm going to let Belle tell the rest of her story. Like I said, it's a very, very, very good and important conversation. She's got a ton of wisdom to share, and more importantly, she has a lot of love to share as well. So with that, why don't we dive into the call? Here I am with Belle Robertson. All right, I'm here here with Belle Robertson. How are you doing, Belle? I'm doing well, thank you. Awesome. Well, I am, uh, I've been thinking about this call for the last few days, ever since we set this up and thinking about, you know, uh, the topic that you're going to be sharing today, I think it's a very worthy one. And certainly when we had a uh, conversation the other day, you in that very little conversation, you opened my eyes up to a very serious and very real problem that probably affects millions of people worldwide, but very few people actually talk about it. So um, it's a pleasure to have you on the, the show today and welcome. Thank you. Great. Um, so for those that don't know what we're talking about, why don't you share a little bit of uh, overview of background about who you are and, and what you're doing? Sure. I'm a person who drank alcohol, perhaps like lots of people, after dinner, wine, weekends, vacations. Um, and I was sort of questioning that my use was trending upwards. Over a longer period of time, it wasn't a big dramatic thing, but I was sort of feeling like it was moving not in the right direction. So I thought, okay, well, I'll do one of these challenges. And this is seven years ago. And there's something called Dry July, which is a fundraiser in in Australia to raise money for cancer. I didn't actually sign up for the thing, but I heard about Dry July and I thought, okay, I'll quit drinking for a month. 
because, you know, that'll prove that I don't have a problem. Mm-hmm. And um, I got about eight days in before I realized that it was way harder than I thought. Hmm. And that was like a weird wake-up call because there's a lot of talk like, I don't have a problem. I, I, have, I personally have university degrees. I run a business. You know, I, I couldn't possibly be an alcoholic. I couldn't possibly be a person relying on alcohol until I tried to quit. Mm-hmm. And then I was sort of like, holy shit, this is way harder than I thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. And if you're in that group, like I did not have, um, I was not arrested for drinking and driving. I hadn't lost my job. I hadn't lost my marriage. The world sort of knows about AA and the world knows about rehab, but where do you go when you want to quit drinking when you don't think that you need to go to AA yet? Mm-hmm. And I didn't know that, that this existed, that there was even support for this. Um, and it's online, which is, you know, new, really. Seven years ago, it was blogs because there wasn't Facebook groups at that time. Mm-hmm. And everybody w- would open up a WordPress blog and you could write anonymously and you could talk about your journey. And I found actual sober blogs, which, you know, if you watch television, all you ever see about overdrinking is car crash, rehab, AA. Mm-hmm. Relapse, relapse, car crash, AA. That's all you see on television. Like, pick a show. Pick a show like Nashville. If there's an alcoholic character, he goes to AA, he has a car crash. He has a relapse. There's never any story about somebody who quits drinking because they realized that they were relying on it psychologically and that it was trending in not the right direction. You know, I was just going to ask you, if you're functioning, if your marriage is good, if your job is good and you're having a few drinks here and there, why would you want to stop? So you started to allude to that right there, the psychological dependency of it. Right. I I think it's that we don't realize to what extent we are psychologically dependent until Mm. we actually try to quit. Mm. And so there's a fairly large amount of justification going on. Like most people aren't trying to figure out how to drink less. Most people are trying to figure out how much they can drink without repercussions. Like the Mm -hmm. average person on a Tuesday night is going to say, I can have a second drink, but I can't, I can't have a third one because I'm driving or I can't have a third one because I got to get up in the morning. And so they don't go into the event saying, I'm going to drink. What's the least I can drink. Mm -hmm. They're trying to figure out what's the most. Mm -hmm. And on vacation, uh, then we start drinking in the morning. And it's sort of, we sort of like fill the space that's available for alcohol, which is just sort of normal, right? Like nobody really considers it until you realize that maybe you're not sleeping great and you notice in the nights you drink, waking at three in the morning thinking, oh, my life is a misery. Or you say tomorrow night, I'm only going to have one glass and then it's tomorrow and then it's two glasses. And I just realized that I couldn't keep a promise to myself about something that's just seemed really basic, right? Mm -hmm. Have one glass of wine with dinner and then stop. And I didn't know that there were other people who decided to have none in that situation. Like to me, it just seemed like something I was going to continuously wrestle with. I'm just going to wrestle with this idea of how much, when, how how many. Mm -hmm. Is there enough? Should I go back out and get more? Should I skip a night? Should I skip three nights? Can I skip a week? And just it started to suck up brain space. Again, I was unaware of it until I tried to quit. And then once the booze was removed, I was shocked at how much uh, vacant space became available in my head. Huh. Which is the name of my site, right? It's called Tired of Thinking About Drinking. 
That's the name of the blog and the mm-hmm. site now. It was the thinking about drinking that was exhausting. Now, do most people uh, go through life, have their two glasses of wine and not give it any, any thought? Sure. Are there lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of people who are drinking three glasses of wine a night and know that something's up, but they don't know what to do because they don't fit any profile? And where do you go to get support for something when you're, it's not really a problem? And as soon as you say to one of your friends, I think I'm going to quit, they go, I drink more than you. Why do you have right. to quit? I drink more than you, you know, or whatever. Right. <laughs> yeah, there really is that middle ground that, that it, there's no real uh, support. Right. Well, there wasn't. And I didn't know it existed. Now, it turns out that it does exist now. But seven years ago, what existed was reading other people's journeys, sober blogs. Mm-hmm. And that's how I got started. And so I was writing a sober blog for myself about my experience. I have a background in writing. It turned out to be helpful. I was, could sit down and type out what I was thinking. But because the internet is anonymous, I could also say like the truth without any particular fear of judgment, you know, that my mother was going to see it or whatever. <laughs> but you could, but I, could, I could actually say what was going on. And what I didn't know was that anybody else would find that helpful. I was really writing to keep my own head above water. I wasn't mm. trying to save anybody. Mm-hmm. And people comment, you know, people who were further along than me would say it gets better. And somebody else who was on day one would say, oh, I wish I was where you are. And there was this little community, again, pre-Facebook group. Mm. And at about eight and a half months, there was somebody reading my blog who was having a hard time repeatedly resetting day one. She was trying to quit, had more serious repercussions, was really trying to quit and having a hard time. And I just sent her a private message and said, look, maybe trying to quit drinking forever is too hard. And maybe you should approach it like a trial, like a challenge. Like, why don't you just commit to quitting for 100 days? And then, because then, you know, it relieves the mental burden of, I have to quit forever. Yes. And, and if I'm going to quit forever, frankly, I'll start tomorrow. <laughs> Right? Because right. if it's forever, then forever starts later. If I said to you right <laughs> now, Peter, you never can eat cheese again. Never. You'd be like, well, I'm going to start that next Monday then because I got this cheese thing. Yeah, I got to. Could you not eat cheese, cheese for 30 days? You'd go, well, I could probably work around it for 30 days. Yeah. Right? And so when yes. I said to this one random anonymous girl, why don't you do this? Why don't you send me an email every day and just tell me how you're doing? Well, she then goes and posts it on her blog and says, Belle says that I'm going to do a hundred day sober challenge and I'm going to email her. And I'm like, Oh, fuck you. <laughs> I'm like, no, no, that's not what I said. And then 10 people email and then 20 people email saying, can I do the challenge with you? Hmm. But people who didn't have blogs, who weren't writers, who were reading and following silently, and I thought it was sort of funny and thought, well, maybe one day there'll be a hundred people doing the hundred day sober challenge. Mm-hmm. And that seven years ago, I got to my 30 days clearly and kept going. Uh, I'm just checking as of today, I've just uh, signed up pen pal 3016. That's people amazing. I've worked with one-on-one. Amazing. Now, there's group stuff. There's AA, there's counselors, there's therapists. If you actually want one-on-one anonymous support, there's not many places to go. Mm. So um, now I have many other thousands of people who subscribe to the free stuff that I do, of which there is 
plenty. Probably 80% of what I do is free. And the 20% of people who pay more than pay for, to support the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I, but I'm told over and over again that being able to email a stranger anonymously when you are a pilot or a psychiatrist or a mom with three kids makes a huge difference to just have somebody out there, a cheerleader. Now to me, of course, when I started, I'm like, this can't possibly help anybody. Like, how could this actually help? Isn't that funny? And then of course it does. And I only know that it does because people tell me, and then I get, you know, emails, many, many emails. How many, how many pilots do you have on your, on your list? That's a little nerve wracking to know that pilots are well, struggling I mean, to stop drinking. Sure. But then so are psychiatrists and show, so are doctors and so are truck drivers and so are uh, gardeners. And so is the unemployed woman with mental health issues. And it really doesn't discriminate. It really doesn't. Um, for sure. It's just that pilots obviously have a, a, a big responsibility and care for other people. Doctors too, of course, and I'm sure a handful sure. of other those occupations. But yeah. Um, yeah, and, a and a lot of people will feel that their particular profession is stressful, that that's why they drink. Mm-hmm. And once you listen to Sober Stuff podcasts or hang out in the sober world a bit, you realize that everybody thinks that their situation is the hard one. Yeah. Mine is hard because I'm a lawyer. Mine is hard because I'm a performer. I'm a singer. Mine is hard because I'm on the road. Mine is hard because I'm single. Mine hard because my husband drinks. Uh, mine is hard because I don't have kids. Mine's hard because I do have kids. And it turns out that our head basically makes up reasons to drink. So when someone emails me and says, I don't know if I have a problem, I say, have you tried to quit? <laughs> it's like, I don't know if I have a problem with dill pickles. I'm like, have you tried to go 30 days with none? It'll make it really clear how yeah. much you rely on dill pickles as soon as you try to have none. You know what this is sort of bringing up for me in my mind is how similar this is to cell phones. Oh, yeah. it's, but it's the it's same thing in terms of addictive response. It, it dings, you pick it up, you want it, you get some, but then that feeds the desire for more. Now imagine that, that you have something like that or like compulsive handwashing or like any other behavior that you repeat even though you really wish you weren't doing it, mm-hmm. except that alcohol is also addictive. So it's not just that the behavior reinforces a dopamine loopy thing. It's that it's like consuming cocaine and then telling me you can't moderate your cocaine use. Well, no mm-hmm. shit. Mm-hmm. it's addictive. Mm-hmm. And so people often say, oh, you know, I'm broken or I'm, I must not have very strong willpower. It's like, it's addictive. <laughs> like, yeah. It's sort of like cigarettes, right? Or right. I mean, most people have an experience of having quit smoking. Lots of us smoked at some point and then didn't. Lots of people um, try hard drugs at some point in their life. Not me, thank God. May I please knock some wood right now? <laughs> Um, most people don't consider giving up drinking unless there's some cataclysmic reason, which is a shame because it's occupying a lot of brain space in lots of people's heads. Like often when I do a talk or I'm on a podcast or somebody hears one of my podcasts, they'll email me and say, I've never heard anybody say this before. I thought I was the only one. Mm. I thought I was the only one who wasn't falling down, who wasn't sleeping in the gutter, but I know something's up. Yeah. So what, give us, walk us through a little bit of what you take, you know, the steps that you take somebody through to help them. I mean, obviously the first one is, we'll see if you even have a problem. I'm putting words in your mouth maybe, but can you quit? 
can you quit is a pretty big uh, exposure to whether or not you actually have a, a deep dependency on it or not. Mm. Well, it can be also just a psych- it can be just a psychological dependency and not a physical one. And it turns out it's hard mm. to quit no matter where you are on the continuum. Mm-hmm. I thought that have, drinking two bottles of wine a night was harder for someone than drinking two glasses of wine a night. And that's not what I found. I found that the psychological dependency, it, it's hard all the time. Like it's hard. You'd think that someone who has one drinking driving arrest would then quit because they've had a consequence. Mm-hmm. But instead what happens is there's the same rationalization process, which is, well, I only got caught that one time because. Or I, oh, that was just that one party where I drank too much. I'll just never do that again. Mm-hmm. And so I had someone in my group who had three DUIs. And you think, Jesus, how does that happen, right? And it happens the same way that you go from two glasses of wine to three, that you go from only drinking on weekends to the weekend starts on Wednesday, mm-hmm. right? So the process actually that I don't, I don't, that's interesting that you ask that because I don't think that I do any of that pre-screening. I write emails and send out audios and do stuff and people know that I work one-on-one and the thing you need to do when you sign up with me is commit to being sober for a hundred days as the minimum. And then we work from there. So it's not like people sign up with me. Well, they, some, some do and sign up and do the free stuff and just lurk, right? Mm-hmm. If somebody actually signs up to do the one-on-one coaching with me, it's because they want to quit. Mm-hmm. And they already know that. And I, like I've said, I've probably said this a hundred times. It's not my job to convince you to quit drinking. It's my job to support you if that's what you want to do. Oh, that's a, that's a, that's a huge distinction because the commitment and responsibility is all on them. It has to be though, right? It has to be. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's the same thing where I, you'll never hear me say, I'm proud of you. It's not about me being proud of you. It's about you being proud of you. Mm. <laughs> it's about you. It's about you figuring out the tools and supports that you need to help you be sober of which there are many and every person is different. And you can talk it over and you can get encouragement and I can say that's a really great thing or it's so cool that you asked that. And I can share stories from my pen pals or from my own personal experience. And in the back of my book, like I challenged myself to write 60 sober tools. Six, nice. Like I, basically I made it up. I made up a heading called 60 tools that can help you be sober. And then I challenged myself to write 60 all huh. the way from go to bed early which is a tool. Like you can go to bed at 7.30 at night if you're having a craving. Now that won't be enough. It's not the only tool you'll need, but it's one. And I basically made a continuum that goes all the way from go to bed early to inpatient rehab. Mm. Now most people don't want to do inpatient rehab. And most people don't want to do AA, at least not right away. Mm -hmm. But maybe you'll start with 10 of the 60 tools. You'll go to bed early. You'll learn about treats and rewards that are not alcohol. You'll learn about accountability and not feeling alone. You'll listen to podcasts. You'll check in with your sober accountability person. You might go to meetings. You might take whatever medication your psychiatrist or family doctor has prescribed to you for, I don't know, anxiety or depression or whatever. Um, And then if you reset repeatedly, then we look at those 10 tools and say, okay, what else could you add? And then what else could you add? Now, that list for every single person is different, which is Mm -hmm. why the one-on-one coaching is particularly helpful because then it's like, okay, Peter, but you said you were going to email four times a day and it turns out you're only emailing once a day. 
Do you think that emailing four times a day is something that you would be willing to try? And most people will say, I don't need to do that. And I'll say, mm-hmm. if you're not repeatedly relapsing, we will not argue. <laughs> we'll say whatever you're doing is fine. Right. If you're on day zero again, we're going to talk about adding some more things. Now, right. some people, of course, uh, warm up to that and go, yes, yes, you're right. And then other people say, you know, uh, I think I'll go back to drinking. And then email me three weeks later and say, yeah, okay, that tried. That didn't work. I'm back again. Like I knew I was here for a reason. Now I'm back. Okay. What do you suggest? So, I mean, I have this really large uh, list of things that you could pick from, but then I, on my site, I have a really large and diverse kind of approach, like short audios and long audios and free emails and paid email, like pen palling and coaching calls and live audio broadcasts and Facebook live and Mixler and medium. And, you know, so there's stuff. Like there's content and there'll be someone who likes to read and then there'll be somebody else who likes the one minute audio messages and you put together your own toolbox. That's cool. You're really providing the the menu and then they get to choose. Right. And I don't use the word empowerment because I think it's a sucky word. Um, (laughs) But I think that you're driving the car that is your own life. And um, we spend a lot of time uh, being mad that we have to put gas in our car. (laughs) <laughs> right. That we have to maintain it. We get mad that we have to have driver's license. A driver's license. Somebody's checking. We ha- we got mad that we need to have a co-pilot telling us to switch lanes in the beginning. Like, no, you, you're too close to that truck. You need to back off. That's how you learn to drive a car. Yeah. And um, and then you still have to put gas in it, and you still have to do some small amount of regular maintenance, or it's going to leave you on the side of the road, or in the case of drinking your sober car will drive into oncoming traffic. So a lot of what I talk about has to do with how to get going. I use this sober car metaphor all the time, but like how Mm -hmm. to get your car going Mm -hmm. because the typical way to do it is to sit in the car with no GPS, no map, no skills, no training, another person on day one who doesn't know what they're doing and the two of you sit there and will yourselves to start. That's the most common thing, right? Mm-hmm. I'll get myself an accountability partner. I'll ask my sister. She and I are going to quit together. Okay, we got two people on day one <laughs> sitting in a car with no manual, no lessons, and you're <laughs> on the highway. Now, you could start off on a smaller road. Most people don't. They walk right into a pub and say, where's my willpower? Mm. <laughs> and I'm over here going, what are you doing in a pub on day three? Like, yeah well, I can't stay out of pubs forever. You know, well, you could in the first week, you know? So um, I use, I, I, well, you can tell, I use metaphors like booze is an elevator that only goes down. Hmm. And you get to choose when you step off. You can wait for repercussions if you want. It's just harder. Mm-hmm. And it's already hard to quit now. So why would you wait for it to be harder? Mm-hmm. I, I talk about a sober car. I talk about a lighthouse. You know, I talk about a little chick. Like your sobriety is like a little chicken that could be easily squished, and you must protect it and not let it get squished by oncoming traffic. <laughs> Sorts of metaphors. But you know, there's other things like when you're making a new habit. In the beginning, you don't know what you're doing, and right. it seems hard and confusing, and you don't even know what you're looking for. 
And it's really helpful if there's somebody who's already done it, who can say, up ahead, there's a little uh, dip in the road. Slow down. Um, and uh, I think that's how we make large change in our life in general. Like lots of people, when they want to run a marathon, go to a clinic. Go to some kind of group thing. Right. Group, group accountability. What would you say are some of the the benefits, the, the, the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, cause that, I, that's, that can be just as, um, inspiring and motivational for somebody to say, what, you know, why am I, what is all, what am I doing all of this for? Mm. What are they you missing? Like out? In terms of like carrot and stick, like you avoid a hangover, yeah. but what do you get? Yep. Yeah. I, I, I hesitate to tell you the list because when it, when this list gets quoted out of context, people will say, well, those things didn't happen for me in the first six days. Therefore, mm-hmm. this whole thing is just bull- bullshit, right? Mm-hmm. But the list is large. Uh, sleep through the night. Like if I could create a pill and we could give it to you and, it would, and here are the benefits. Sleep through the night. Spend less dumb money. Consume <laughs> fewer stupid calories. Not argue with your spouse at two in the morning about something that is meaningless that you will not remember tomorrow. Mm. Stop the meanness and the crying, depending on the gender and the situation. Uh, not wake at 3 a.m. <laughs> I'm, giving you, I'm giving you the list of things, again, to avoid. Uh, if you could wake up in the morning having slept through the night, feeling proud of yourself, uh, what would you pay for that? Mm-hmm. And so when you say to people, if you could spend less money, consume fewer dumb calories, be proud of yourself. All you got to do is quit drinking. Lots of people go, yeah, I don't want to do that. I don't care if I'm not proud of myself, then too bad. And I'm like, oh my God, proud of yourself. Do you know what happens when you're proud of yourself? Everything else changes. So, you know, more confidence. You can show up for yourself. Take advantage of work opportunities that you were hung over or distracted from. Uh, there's an increase in empathy, which is very difficult to convince somebody of in the beginning uh-huh. because you're more sympathetic about your own struggles, which means you're yeah. more empathetic about other people. Uh, a reduction in anxiety uh, is a completely non-published side effect of quitting drinking. Most people think they drink to help with their anxiety. What you don't know, and it's not printed on the bottle, is that if you quit drinking, it helps your anxiety, that the drinking itself makes you feel anxious. The same mm-hmm. way that drinking makes you feel depressed, it's a depressant. So when I have people email me and say, I've got a chronic anxiety and depression issue and I've done therapy, I will say, have you done any of that therapy sober? No. Did you tell your therapist that you had a drinking issue when you were doing your marriage counseling anxiety therapy? No. Now this is, as I mentioned to you in a previous conversation that we had, I mean, this is really an insidious dis-ease because, uh, it's one thing when you're getting DUIs or when uh, you hit rock bottom. It's quite another right. when you're right. just, right. you've got your head above water, but the, the water's rising, you yeah. know? And, and you know it and, and you think nobody else knows it, right? Like, yeah. you think, my friends are going to give me shit if I say I'm quitting drinking because I don't look like I'm drowning. Yeah, it's a slow bleed. Right. But really, nowadays, in the time of yoga, cleanses, vegan, keto, it's a perfect time now compared to seven years ago, to say, I'm doing a challenge. I'm doing a thing. I'm doing a detox thing. Hmm. I'm doing a 6 a.m. yoga thing that prevents me from drinking because I feel like a bag of shit when I have to hang my head upside down at 6 a.m. 
-hmm. in a hot room. I'm training for a running thing. I mean, really, you could say anything. It's really interesting that you've noticed that dramatic of a change in, in even the last seven years. Oh, and I even mean, in the last seven months, like since January, stuff has changed again. Wow. Like now, now in the press, there's this sober curious stuff, right? I don't know if you've seen any of this. Sober like, curious. No, like, I haven't heard that. Oh, there's a book called Sober Curious, and then there's like bars that don't have alcohol. Um, oh. which, is na- which now exists, which, you know, again, didn't exist however many years ago. What do they, what do, they do at non-alcoholic bars? You socialize and have music and play games and, or have quiz night or whatever, and you have cocktails that just don't have alcohol. Ah, interesting. So, you know, it, it just creates a, there's also some things where if you go to some of these big, large music festival events, there's tents set up with no booze. Mm-hmm. Where there might be, you know, 10 beer tents, there now might be a sober cocktail tent. Um, it's certainly a marketing opportunity as well. If you're in the business of taking people's money, then you would find a trend and hop on it like kale or any other green juice, you know, like really. But for lots of us, it's not a fad and it's not a trend. It's a, I feel so much better with it removed. I don't even care how you labeled me before. I don't care if you labeled me over drinker, problem drinker, alcoholic, I don't even care. I know I feel better now. And so then I don't really even care what other people think because the improvement in well-being is so dramatic. Even when life is hard and things suck. One of my sober pen pals, sober 200 days, which is not a super long time, and her son dies. She Mm. doesn't drink. We have all kinds of conversations about processing grief with and without with with and without alcohol. Somebody else in my group, you know, who has to put their cat to sleep. There's somebody else who got fired. There's somebody else who relapses repeatedly and can't make a decision about whether or not to switch jobs and and everything in between. And people are navigating already complicated lives. Mm-hmm. And you know, I mean, you and I know that the incidence of anxiety and depression is way larger than reported. Nobody talks about it. Mm -hmm. Imposter syndrome, feeling like you don't fit in, feeling fake, feeling like you need to drink to somehow lubricate an awkward situation, social anxiety, all that stuff. The number of people who are using alcohol and know there's something up is huge. One of the biggest insights I had, I've had in my own psychological development and going to some of these self-improvement programs and stuff like that was with the whole imposter syndrome thing to realize how uh, not just normal it is, but (laughs) like it, everybody's doing it. That's part of the maturing process. It's like, wait a second, who am I really? And so you're going to have those, you're not going to just blip from, you know, this immature nothing to this perfect uh, idealized version of yourself, there's right. going to be that transition. And right. a lot of times we, we put on what we, what we project that we want, but we're not quite there yet. And so, yeah, on the inside, it's like, ah, oh, I'm full of shit. Like I'm just, I'm just, right. <laughs> but yeah, that's one it. of the things that I watch for on my own site. Like I'm very clear because it's anonymous, because I'm anonymous, because all of the things that we're doing together is 
private. My people create screen names for themselves and I only ever refer to them. I mean, if you were Peter, then you might make up your screen name as, you know, uh, Jeffrey the third. And then we would just call you Jeffrey the third and change enough details. If I shared a story that no one could identify you. Mm -hmm. Um, but then you realize that not only is everybody dealing with the same stuff, but we're all hearing virtually the same words in our head. Right. Like when you ask somebody, why, what's going to be the hurdle when you tell your mother that you're not drinking? And then someone feeds you back that line. And then I share it with the group. I'll get 300 emails saying, I thought I was the only one. Isn't that amazing? So when I share my stuff and I do it honestly and with the sort of vulnerability and the imposter syndrome and the I'm not a perfect human. In fact, I'm just a person who doesn't drink. I'm not perfect in any other way at all. I'm simply a person who doesn't drink, period. And I talk about it. Um, the number of people who just feel heard because of that, turns out feeling heard is like a vehicle to help you make change. Yes. Right? Yep. Okay, but now you and I can get that on a sort of intellectual level. But imagine that you could actually make large change like quitting drinking by feeling heard. Like to me, that just seems so incredibly impossible. <laughs> And yet, yeah. and yet, right? So what does it mean when you feel heard? It means you're not alone. It means you're not nutty. It means that somebody else hears the exact same voice. Someone else who went to university, someone else who has three kids on the autism spectrum, three boys under 11 years old, all autistic. She's, wow. She hears the same shit in her head that I do that the, that the, that the psychiatrist hears. Imagine you're a psychiatrist and you have an over-drinking problem. Who yeah. can you tell? Yeah. An anonymous person online. Mm -hmm. Who can you have weekly calls with? An anonymous person online. Uh, I actually have a woman. Um, I have a woman who's an anesthesiologist. I have a man in a wheelchair uh, from a car accident. And sometimes people ask me, like, what are the demographics? It's like, there is no demographic. Like, what's the demographic on anxiety? What's the demographic on imposter syndrome? <laughs> it's a psychographic. It's not a demographic. Yes. I've got people from 27 to 73, literally. And so the 27-year-olds, whenever we get a 27-year-old, we're like celebrating, going, oh my God, I wish I had done this when I was 27. Oh my God. <laughs> I sort of knew something was like not quite right, but, you know. And then the woman who's 73 is like saying, do you think it's too late for me? And I say, you're going to be here for 20 more years. How do you want to spend them? Yeah. Proud, proud of yourself? Available for your grandkids? Do you know that they won't take your call after 6 o'clock? Do you know why they won't take your call after 6 o'clock? They can't count on you to be sober. Mm. Right? Yeah, and what, what a great example that would be to make such a, a dramatic shift at that, at that uh, age in your life and and finish strong, so to speak. Well, and I think that for every person who gets sober, there are a hundred people around you who are directly impacted. Yeah. Your least. partner, your kids, but the decisions that your kids make about how they drink and who they date and how they raise their own kids. Like when I was growing up, I didn't know anybody who didn't drink. When I quit drinking at whatever age I was, 40 something, I didn't know anybody who didn't drink. In some of the cases with my pen pals, their kids will know them. 
right? Like a woman who's quit drinking after a 40-year bad story, who's a functioning policeman, policewoman, who, who quits drinking, uh, 100 people are impacted. Not, not, not to mention her, like, you know, the, the waking up feeling proud of yourself thing. It's yeah. large. Can an anonymous person on the internet actually help you feel like you're not broken? Uh, it turns out, yes. <laughs> but, but you know what? Like there's, there's other sober coaches too. Most of them though have groups. And you know, groups are actually easier than one-on-one, right? It really is. Um, my person, well, you, my- you bring the, you, you bring, you illuminate the, the commonalities of the, of the um, dysfunction. Yes. It's, and like you said, the one, you shared that one story and then hundred people go, Oh, right. those are, that's the same thoughts in my head that that group right. uh, exposure is so powerful. And I do that by email, like sending out one email to my mailing list of 22,000 people. Yeah. And then I get, so it's like curated. You're not getting every random internet person's opinion. You're getting what I share. I share sure. my own stuff, but I also share emails from pen pals. Well, and you're seeing the patterns and you're seeing the right. needs and, and it's you're, you're the, it's yeah, that's, curated, that's very cool. Right. Because otherwise what you'll have in an open group is anybody saying anything. Trolls people who are repeatedly on day one taking no, taking no advice, not asking for advice, asking people for help, but not taking any advice with no accountability. So then you can disappear for three months and nobody's checking on you. Uh, you know, that's really interesting because I've been in the coaching space for a while and forget sort of the topic that you're helping people with, but anybody that is uh, a leader that's trying to help people. I mean, I've, I've been in the relationship space and I've been helping men and women be better men and women and better relate, et cetera. And, and you're bringing up a really interesting model on how to potentially better help those individuals because you're right. It's so noisy and it's very distracting. Um, but if you become sort of the, the gatekeeper to, and to, to curate the content like you were right. talking about, right. Oh, that's really interesting. I got to think about that. Oh, well, I don't know if I need to think about that. That's really powerful. No, but if you think also about podcasts where it's single speaker, like let's imagine that you get up tomorrow and you record 10 audios that are 21 minutes long each where you talk about something like um, f- couples issues to do with finances. Just pick a thing, pick a topic. Like how do you decide what car to buy? And what you're really going to do is give them an example about how to think about it, how to think about it from the other person's point of view, how to accept that you come to the table with money programming. I'm making this up off the top of my head. If you record it and it's one person speaking and you, Peter, say you, I want you to, okay, I'll pretend to be you. I want you to think about um, buying your next car and the kinds of decisions that go into that and how easy it is for you to get into an argument with your partner about that. So mm-hmm. here's what we're going to do. You're going to think about this and this, and I'm going to tell you a story about that and that. What happens at the end of that is that person feels like you were talking to them, even though it was a broadcasted audio. Mm-hmm. Because interview, like we're doing now, which is super fascinating and will elicit conversations that we would never have alone. But when you're listening to it, you're a, you're a bystander. If it's one person speaking, you're participating because I'm talking to you and it's mm-hmm. private. It's in your head. It's one, like it's not three people sitting in a room watching a movie. It's you with your headphones on in the grocery store. Mm-hmm. I didn't know. I mean, I'm telling you this. It makes it sound like I figured this out. I didn't. Someone told me. 
I recorded audios. They said, it, I like your audios because. And I'm like, really? But I don't do them like other people do. Most people do interviews. And they're like, yeah, I feel like interviews, it's too easy to turn them out. I want to hear you talk to me. Tell me what to do. Mm. Tell me how to think about it. Tell me how to reframe it. Repeat it nine times. Now, I also live in Paris, so I can go and stand somewhere interesting and talk about what I see or the duck pond or whatever. Oh, that's fascinating. It, it, just from an inspirational, uh, contextual thing for you, is that, is that why you do it? Or? Uh, it's variety. Again, these are all accidents. I mean, this is the reflexive process of evolving in front of your group. Yes. yes, but these are these are intentional accidents. I mean, you're you're taking action, putting your neck out there. Sometimes it gets sure. cut off. Other times it's yes. celebrated. But I, but I go entirely based on what someone tells me works for them. Yes. I try stuff. You're right. I throw all kinds of spaghetti at the wall. But like, for example, um, I was going to record a podcast, but I wasn't at home. I was out on my run. So I pulled out my phone and just started talking into the microphone on my phone. At the halfway point of my run, I was standing at the duck pond. Okay, so you can hear the ducks in the background and you can hear <laughs> things. And I narrate the fact that in, I'm in France and the policemen just run by and all the French policemen are dressed in red and blue spandex and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> well, then this becomes like, are you going back to the duck pond? So then I recorded a series of audios where I stood at the duck pond and recorded all the audios. All, uh -huh. all, no video, just audio. Yeah. I would never have known that that would work until someone told me. And then I started doing Facebook videos. Well, I'm anonymous. My group is anonymous. So I do Facebook live videos where I turn the camera out and video the duck pond while I talk. Or I, I video that. the metro or the view from my balcony in my apartment. You can still hear me, but there's something to see. Um, what, when I'm listing it like this, it makes it seem like I woke up evolved. <laughs> Like I, I hesitate to have this conversation with you because it does make it seem like I've figured it out. And I didn't. Uh, they told me. And I listened. I record podcasts. Fine. I then started putting little clips. Like here's a one-minute teaser of the podcast. Somebody said, could you do more one-minute messages? Sometimes my attention deficit brain can't process more things. Mm. Fine. So I did a bunch of what I thought were cheesy one-minute messages where I sounded in a softy voice. And I said things like, being sober is the foundation for all the things you want in your life. And I put music underneath them. And they're like fantastically popular. And people will press play and listen to 50 in a row. And I'm out here going, no, it's like that cheesy music. Aren't you tired of listening to me? And they don't even go together. The topics are all over the place. Okay. Oh, that's wild. So the, like, how would I know that one minute cheesy messages were going to be meditative and soothing in a way that the longer ones aren't, or it depends on your mood or you, some days you want one or the other. How would I possibly <laughs> must hit the microphone one time in every interview? I, that must, was the must, second time for must. me. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm just, my, my gang knows that I do that at least one time. It's <laughs> yeah. yeah. Making sure everybody's still awake. Right. Um, that's really that's really interesting. That it's a bit of a tangent. I'd actually like to follow up with you on some of that stuff, maybe uh, off this topic, because I want to make sure we stay on sure. topic. Um, you talked about reframing. Uh, there's an art to reframing. Um, maybe you could give. Maybe this would be a good time for you to share a few of the case studies that you've had. Obviously, without revealing names or anything, but just what are some of the ty types of issues that people come to you with? What's what does their life look like? 
how do you help them reframe and how do you help them? And you know, what, what does their life look like after you work with them? Maybe mm. you could share a case study or two on that. Sure. Um, you could be a 65 year old man who lost your job from drinking and you could have watched my stuff for a long time and then decided you were going to sign up with me. And then you email once a day and say, I'm here and I send out some audios and you listen to them and you send me your feedback. That might be some people. The particular person that I'm thinking about, he actually sent in relatively thoughtful feedback. So then we could have a conversation and he would challenge something that I'd say. He'd say, boy, I never thought about it like that. Can you explain why it's like, why you think about it like that? I'd explain it. We'd go on. Then something would happen with a girl he was dating and we'd have a conversation about that. But it's specific to the person, where they are at that time. And the reframing is done on a day-by-day basis. Like, we don't sit down and talk about how you're going to navigate Christmas in July. We navigate whatever's going on right now. How are you going to make sure you get enough uh, sleep? How are you going to make sure that you don't get overwhelmed because feeling really overwhelmed is a trigger to drink? Um, If you come to the table and you are a young woman whose child died at two years old, and you are trying to quit drinking now, and it's been about a year since your child died. Hmm. Um, I meet you where you are. If you're talking to me about trouble sleeping, we talk about sleeping. And the things that I might reframe would be like, it gets better as you go along. How you feel right now is not how you'll feel all the way through. And you don't say it one time. You say it every time. Because mm-hmm. it's, it's, rep- it's iterative. It's repetitive. It's incremental. It's cumulative. You don't just hear something, but this is like how everybody evolves. You don't just hear, uh, stop eating French fries one time and then stop eating French fries, right? If it was, we'd all, well, if it was, then every self-help book would have one page that says, stop doing that shit. Yeah. Right? Right. It doesn't work like that. Mm-hmm. And so if you, if you email every day or if you're reading the sober emails that I send out, if you're not, you know, not engaged in the private stuff, like the private one-on-one stuff, but if you're reading it's repeated over and over. Make sure you get enough sleep. Look at the treats thing. Look at the rewards thing. Sober car. Put gas in your car. Maintenance. And then what does each individual person need reframing on? My husband's an ass. Okay. So the reframing on that is it's hard to tell in the beginning how much of that is you and how much of that is him. He may be a turd, but you probably can't tell until about day 200. For now, it's okay if you just take care of you and let him be a turd over there, and we'll talk about him later. Now, that may never come up again. She may get to day 30, 60, 90, and never mention her husband again, because whatever it was, was like a a moment, right? Mm -hmm. But if you think about it, it's like when a kid comes running into the room and says, mommy, mommy, where do babies come from? You answer the question that's in front of you, and you don't talk about Christmas. Mm-hmm. And if they ask the question again, then they need more reframing and more reassurance and more information. And if they go, okay, then off they go. Right? So what am I reframing? Everything. Should you be dieting in the beginning? Should you be dating in the beginning? How much maintenance do you need? How often should you email? I mean, it's going to be different for every person based on how they're doing. There's a lot of worrying about husbands. I'm on day 40, but my husband still drinks. What can I do? Or 
husband's emailing me saying, I'm getting, you know, I'm getting sober. I'm improving my life. My wife has, shows no interest. And I have to reframe, you know, personal responsibility. Think how long it took you to make change. Mm-hmm. Think how long you knew you needed to do something before you did something. Afford her the same grace. Eyes in your own paper, that kind of shit. Mm-hmm. Um, and that your addictive voice will distract you and make it all about her because then you can be mad at her and then you can drink at her. What's the point in doing this anyway, right? Mm-hmm. You know what the drink at people is. It's like, well, fuck you. If he's going to, my ex is going to be like that, then fuck him. I'll drink. Mm. Yeah, that's because your addictive voice really is going to look around for reasons to drink, including flat out making shit up. <laughs> right? Like, like if I drink, it will help me with Sheila in accounting. <laughs> right. right? Sheila in account, that traffic. Oh my God, that traffic. Sheila in yeah. accounting. I have to drink. It's like- I have to drink. I have right? to. Yeah, I got to have a drink because like, like how else am I going to cope with Sheila in accounting? Fucking Sheila. <laughs> Fucking Sheila ruins it for so <laughs> many people. But then, you know, if I have one person have a Sheila story, then I share it. Then really, I can have hundreds of emails back. Oh, and then everybody's like, damn it. I have a Sheila. Sheila. I have a Sheila. I have a Sheila, yeah. <laughs> and then I'll use some slightly, because infl- I also swear quite a bit, which uh, is a pattern interrupt, but it's also just who I am. And I decided when I t- was doing this that I was going to be 100% me, even if that wasn't um, pretty. Mm-hmm. Uh, because otherwise I couldn't do it. Like I couldn't do a fake version of this. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I've lost my train of thought about Sheila and accounting and not pretty and swearing. Oh yeah, I use like derogatory language like uh, Sheila is an anus and you do not drink because of giant anuses. Like you don't. And so when you say it like that, everybody's like, yeah, exactly. Like, okay, uh, right. You're right. I'm not going to drink because of an anus. Okay. <laughs> you should see what happens to your site statistics when you have a blog post called, uh, you know, beware of a giant anus. <laughs> Can I tell you the kind of porn searches that end up on my site and oh. must then be shocked when they find out it's about drinking and yeah. counting. Talk about a pattern interrupt. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, some of that language, um, can make you see your own head with like a different point of view, right? That's what reframing is, is, is there another way to look at this? Black and white thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, Sheila's a witch. Sh- Sheila's fantastic. Is there anything gray, any gray? Is there any possibility that 5% of this is you? Right. <laughs> and not, because I mean, of course, it's more than 5%, but most people won't admit to that. So you start off with five and say, right. okay, Peter, what's the 5% that's you in, in this argument with your, with your wife about the car? What is your 5%? Mm-hmm. Own that. And that actually can change. I mean, you know this from relationship stuff. One person owns 5% of their shit, everything changes. Mm-hmm. Everything changes. Yep. I have a woman in my group whose husband has threatened to leave if she can't solve her overdrinking issue. He's had enough of watching her go to a party and become drunk to the point where he has to help her home. It's not the, not the kind of life he wants to have. He gets to make that choice. She's on the phone to me saying, what do I tell him? And you say, you're right. It's hard. It's even, it's hard. It must be confusing to you, honey. It's confusing to be me. I know that I say I'm going to quit and then I relapse again. I know that must seem like I don't care or I'm not trying. Like you own it. Mm -hmm. And I'm 
meeting with Bill and I'm talking on the phone and I'm going to, in her case, she's going to meetings and she's taking medication. Like I'm trying all the things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I understand that you feel nervous that I'm going to relapse again. Like she'll, you know, she'll email me and say, he's, he's, he's watching me. It's like, yeah, he's afraid for you. He loves you. Oh my God. He loves you. <laughs> he wants you to be well. Oh my mm-hmm. God. You should drink at him. What a bastard. Yeah. And if you can reframe it like that, then people can sort of see it a little bit from the other person's point of view and realize that all she has to do is stay sober. This will all stop. All of it. It'll all just become, remember that time back then. Mm-hmm. When you're 20 years from now, the regret and the shame will be better, really. Mm-hmm. The, the further away you get from whatever the event is, the better. I have a woman in my group you know, who, who woke up in another city. Mm. And you think those stories don't happen, except that she's a young person. And, you know, she sort of lives in fear that she's going to trip, fall, and wake up in another city. Mm-hmm. And the reframing that I would do with her would be every day away from day one is one day closer to a new version of you over here and one day further away from the old version of you back there. Mm-hmm. And there's no reason to think you're going back there unless you drink again. And how many times might you say that? Uh, daily sometimes. Depends on the person. Do you, do you get into, uh, I, earlier in the call, you talked about an actual physical addiction, which I get, but is there, is there not always an underlying psych- psychological void that any addiction is seeking to fill? Yeah. Isn't, isn't the drinking the symptom of the root cause of the psychological void sort of except that it's addictive substance true so like why am i addicted to cocaine does it is it because i have a hole in my soul or is it because cocaine is addictive right okay so the problem is that there's a lot of shaming of the person who has the addiction with and 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 it's not shaming like bad you bad you but it's like oh there must have been trauma there must have been abuse there must have been some underlying large deficit um, which is simply shaming language without it being intent. It's not intentional, but that's the way it, it feels. It so makes one sense. Of, one of the first things that I say to people is you're not broken. You remove the booze and most of this will stop. Like the peeing your pants, that'll stop. Right? The, mm-hmm. the, the buying all the nice groceries, but then starting to drink at dinner time so that you don't actually make the meal, that'll stop. Mm. Um small like small things embarrassing yourself at a child party event telling i mean i have a story of like disclosing intimate marriage details in front of 20 people because i'd had three drinks and it seemed hilarious Mm. uh it's not funny Mm -hmm. and it's funny in the retelling like ha ha isn't that embarrassing but like it's not funny yeah well i never run the risk of doing that again if i don't have three glasses of wine um, does that answer your question? It does. I, I love, I love the starting point of you're not broken. Well, um, yeah. And so if you ask me then what are the things that we, what are the commonalities that we do have if it's not childhood trauma, for example, which is really a big thing in the addiction world is the, the trauma thing. Sure. Um, which isn't to say that I don't have pen pals or, subscribers or have talked to people who have trauma. I do. 
but so do lots of people in mm. the world. It's really quite common, you know, mm. that we know from the Me Too and we know from the uh, ag- aggression and violence on the metro and the train and the whatever. Like, we know that people have shitty things happen. From what I can see, somebody who might be inclined to drink more than they want to would be a person who is sensitive in the in the clinical sense, like tags at you, can hear something a mile away, can't stand the tap dripping, need the right pillow. Um, that kind of, there's just like a heightened, literally a heightened central nervous system sensitivity. Mm. Um, that seems to be a pretty common thing. So, okay, mm. if you're an extra sensitive person, feelings easily hurt, cry at a dog food commercial, um, can tell in a room if there's some kind of bad bad vibe and you know empathic yes so you pick up the like i'm a person who doesn't watch the news i'm a full functioning adult with three university degrees i don't watch the news because it winds me up right okay so i live my life in a certain amount of ignorance because it protects the inside of my head i know what i need to know and then i don't watch video ever Mm. Even if there's an event, I read the text, but I don't watch the video because it just gets in my head and it makes me feel crummy. Okay. Mm -hmm. So if you're a sensitive person, fine. Ticklish, afraid of the dentist, all those sorts of things. (laughs) Faint, sight of blood, whatever. (laughs) Um, If you take that and then you add in some kind of crappy parenting and it doesn't have to be overt abuse, it can just be not getting your needs met. So you're an extra sensitive Virtually person. Virtually all parents. <laughs> right, exactly. But if you're an extra sensitive person and your needs aren't being met, then you think it's because you're a disaster, a fuck up, not good enough. Mm-hmm. 12-year-old can't identify that their parents have their own bloody flaws and can't see past the end of their own nose. They don't know that when you're, you don't know that when you're 12. Yeah, and your parents then, are supposed to be perfect. I always thought that you didn't have kids till you had your shit sorted out. I have no <laughs> idea. What are these people doing? I know. I know. And so then if you also then don't have good self-soothing tools, now think about it. How many of us grow up with a parent who comes home from work and says, had a really long day at work. I'm going to go for a run to decompress my head and then come back and we'll have dinner. Nobody. How many people come home from uh, the night shift and say, I'm going to have a bath. It's one of the ways that I can like shut things down for me. I'm going to have a hot chocolate. I'm going to get the blanket and sit on the, on the couch. Self-soothing. Well, we're not taught it like meditation or yoga or, or literally a blanket with a hot chocolate on the couch. Watching bad television can be self-soothing, particularly if you do it in a dark room and then all of the periphery fades out. You've had that experience where you can get right into the TV and then you're like communing with the television. It shuts mm-hmm. out the world. Mm-hmm. Well, we need ways to shut out the world. We need ways to go to bed at 7.30 at night fully clothed. We need ways to decompress. It turns out you can learn them. But if you're a sensitive, you have a sensitive head, you have some kind of crappy parenting, again, like you said, just about everybody. You don't have great self-soothing skills, which is most people. And you're consuming a product that is addictive. Mm-hmm. What do you think happens? Mm-hmm. What happens is you never learn any other tools on how to feel better because you just have a glass of wine. You don't even learn that a V8 juice at 6 p.m. would help because the blood sugar is wacky 
and you need something, you're used to having a drink at six o'clock. Being told that you can have a V8 juice at six o'clock is like a light bulb going on. Because the cue and reward, like the I have the feeling I need the thing, the distance between them gets so short that we go right from any emotion to alcohol. Mm-hmm. Happy, celebration, wedding, funeral, alcohol, 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 alcohol. Hmm. Oh, that's interesting. I can tell you're so, very thought you're very thoughtful about this though. Well, like, it's you're not you're, just you're, like asking questions, you're actually like processing and thinking. Uh, yeah, I am processing. I like it. <laughs> it's not, I mean, I'm, I've not been, as I mentioned to you earlier on another call that, you know, I, I grew up in a conservative Christian household. We didn't drink. Um, most of, we were at a biblical school. So all of my friends and their families for the most part didn't drink. And I, you know, obviously you hit high school and you're going to, kids are going to start to do what they want to do and college and whatnot. So obviously friends started to drink them, but um, there was never, that wasn't necessarily my world. So you're, you're introducing some things that I, that is getting me to think a little bit more and, and pontificating about what that would be like to all, like you just said, always turning to alcohol on any emotion. Right. You know? Ha- well, and my joke is happy, sad, mad, glad Tuesday. Is a reason to drink. Right. right. Happy, right. sad, mad, glad. Sheila. I should put Sheila in there too. Happy, sad, yeah, just mad, glad. Say. Sheila Tuesday. Sheila and Tuesdays. Right? Oh my God, it's Tuesday. I mean, <laughs> as soon as I hear somebody, like if I meet somebody and they say, oh, you don't drink? Oh, I didn't. Oh, wow. Was that hard? Yeah, I try not to drink on Mondays, she says. So Try I'm, not to drink on Mondays. So what do I hear then? But what do I hear? She's trying to manage her content. She's trying to manage her consumption. Right. It's on her mind. She's trying to skip a day. She's trying to skip a day a week. Mm-hmm. What she may not realize is that it's easier to have none than to do that. Mm-hmm. And most people like don't even know, don't have it. Where would you ever have heard that before? Where would you hear? It's because I failed at moderation means in my head that I will fail then at being sober. Mm, they're not the same. You fail at moderating an addictive substance. Yeah, no shit. Yeah. That makes, that's a really good point. So uh, full sobriety might actually be the easier path. It is actually way easier and you can't convince people of that. So you must go in the side door with the trial. Got you it. must go in with a trial because who's going to do anything forever? Who's going that's, to do forever? that's another really uh, intelligent um, approach okay. that I want to give you kudos for because I there's so many people who have gone through their own struggles, come out on the other side, have found the answers, and then they want to go and shout at the world with, you know, they're at Z, everybody else is at A, mm. and they just want to say, jump to Z, jump to Z. And it's like, right. I'm at A, I, I think I need to go to B. So, right. yes, the- it's funny that you say that because, in fact, my original training in an earlier life when I was 20 was, um, special education to integrate kids into the regular classroom who had difficulty reading. And you had to learn how to break down large tasks into teachable bits. And you had to be able to then start with taking somebody from zero to one, Mm -hmm. not taking somebody from nine to 10. Mm -hmm. And I feel like my whole life I have focused a lot on the zero to one because oftentimes once you get going, then it's perpetuating. You have momentum. You feel better. It's easier to keep going. I do stuff for people who are on day 200 or 2000, but most of my focus is 
is is the very beginning part mm-hmm. because that's where the most change happens, right? Yes. There's lots of people in the self-improvement world who only want to work with Olympic athletes. I want to work with the person who's afraid to stand on the treadmill. Mm-hmm. Right? Because once you get through that resistance, shit changes. Oh, that's where the, yeah, that, that's perhaps the biggest transformation. Yeah, right, right. And like you said, there's lots of, I only work with the elite, blah, blah. I only work with the top 1%. And I'm like, yeah, I wasn't the top 1%. Like, <laughs> I'm a girl from a low-income family. There was a period of time where we didn't have a telephone. My family didn't have a car. Um, we lived in co-op housing. There, like... I know what it's like to not be able to buy liquid Tide and peanut butter the same week because you had to decide which one you could afford. Mm. Um, quitting drinking isn't for the fancy people. And it's not only for people who want to raise their hand and say, my name is Belle and I'm an alcoholic, which is the only other thing that anybody really knows about. Mm-hmm. Right? Like if somebody came to you tomorrow and said, I've been worried about what I'm drinking, what would you say? You would say, try having less, which is moderation, or talk to your doctor, or go to AA. That's, that would be most people. Yep. Right? Yeah, there's no, hasn't been anyway, at least, that middle ground. Right. Tired of, what is it again? Tired of thinking, thinking about, drinking. about drinking. That's right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now, if you're a good Canadian, which I am, then that's the lyrics to a song by the Tragically Hip. There's actually a song called Tired of Thinking. Well, the song's called El Dorado, but those are the lyrics from a song. If you're Canadian, that's an in-joke. If you're not, then you think I'm a genius and that's a perfectly, you know, good. <laughs> can, you, can you be a good Canadian that doesn't live in Canada? Uh, yeah, 10 years. But I married a French Canadian and I live in France. And so we speak French together but in okay. France, so we have the wrong accent. We have the Canadian version of the accent. Yeah. Yes, but yes, but no. Yes. <laughs> this has been fascinating. Yeah, I want to, I want to, I was just trying to think of like, how can we tie this up in a, in, in a nice little bow, or at least uh, the thought that was coming to me was, is there something for, for those that are listening to this right now who might be having that light bulb moment right now, like, oh my gosh, yeah, I'm in that space mm. of that middle ground. Could you speak directly to them and then maybe oh, yeah. offer some words of wisdom and or what they can do next? Yeah. Um, I don't need to convince you that uh, over drinking is a bad idea. And I don't need to tell you that moderation doesn't work because you've tried it. And what you may not know is that there's like thousands of us out here doing this sober thing Um, But that you alone in your head, the voice that says drink now is too loud. And that's why we need to involve other people. And I don't mean like, I don't mean like your neighbor. And I don't mean like your drinking sister. I mean, other people who've done it. um, I think that most meaningful change in life is made in relationship with other people. And I think that if we're alone in our head with that voice that says drink now, it will also then say things like, you're weak because you can't quit by yourself. I got myself into this. Why can't I get myself out of this? Now, Peter, this is the time where I will sometimes channel what I hear people say. And then when I say it out loud to somebody, they're like, yes, yes, that's me. That's me. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You've tried tr- drinking water as every second drink 
You've tried the fake beer. You've tried skipping Mondays. Have you tried a period of time with none? Would you be willing to consider the fact that it might actually be easier and would feel better? Nobody quits forever. In fact, you only ever quit for a day. That's the whole AA thing, one day at a time. Um, having a goal makes it seem like there's an end point. It makes it easier to start. And if you have some accountability or support or advice from somebody who's done it, uh, all the better. And then you're not alone in your head with it. Because I think that that's the part where people get stuck. I, should, I got myself into this. I should be able to get myself out of it. Mm-hmm. And not, I wonder if there's resources available for me that are free and anonymous or paid and anonymous or where I do show my face in a room or where I do tell somebody or I do ask somebody who I know quit drinking and say to them, how did you do it? Because uh, there's like wax of us out here. And uh, it's better in a way that you can't actually imagine. Even when the rest of your life is shitty. Uh, feeling proud of yourself is worth doing. Period. End of sentence. Love that. Where, where can somebody go to find out, to get in touch with you and find out more about what you're up to? I have a very creatively named website. It's called tiredofthinkingaboutdrinking.com. <laughs> I love as a Canadian that you have about in about. the title. I must. Tired of thinking about drinking. Yeah, I know. About drinking, yes. Oh. Um, Belle, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for your time today and sharing your uh, compassion and your empathy with, uh, with this very real issue and uh, enlightening people to a better version of themselves. I think that's uh, phenomenal. And frankly, that's really the entire intent of this podcast is cool. to bring people on who have a right. expertise and helping people uh, tap into their higher versions of themselves for greater impact. So right. thank you. Very welcome. Happy to be here. Awesome. All right. Take care. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye.